Well, hello to our new listeners. Thanks for joining. And to our returning guests, welcome back. Welcome to Season 6 of the Morosible Podcast. My name is Mo. In this season, like you've been used to, get ready for more amazing stories, more inspirational stories to help you set your stories free. I created this podcast as a resource for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them to share stories and processes, as well as to build communities around important salient issues that affect all of us as humans. So on this show, you get to hear amazing stories from people like you who show us how to get more out of life. The stories featured here are by people whose journey I am partly inspired by, as well as challenged by, but most importantly, people whose courage and vulnerability have afforded us an opportunity to hear their life stories. And I hope you find them as inspiring. Now enjoy your show and don't forget to share this episode and the other ones. <laughs> what a fun Saturday. I actually forgot to hit the record button. Oh my goodness. All right. Today I have someone that I'm, um, that I, I, I'm, I was just waiting to share their story for a while. She's a sister to me and we go a long way back since high school. And she's also a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor and a humanitarian. And she's also a catalyst in the sense that she really understands the value of bringing to life visions that have the potential to transform human lives. She has spent over 14 years in finance, education, technology, and nonprofit across different entities like sales, operations, marketing, and fundraising. And through her ventures, um, Radiant um, Futures, she has done great work lifting women from low-income families from poverty while providing a bridge to their progenies through education. In addition to helping me manage some of my portfolios back home, she's also the godmother to my godchildren. She's happily married with three kids. And so everyone join me in welcoming my younger sister. And I use that word very, very intentionally. Olufumi, Ofumi, Kubanjo, back to the podcast. <laughs> So like I said before, that's seven weeks difference. You can buy it down. They now no, tell it. This is but not Jacob and Issa. They'll they just induce the birth earlier. Then not for, can buy that. Not for all the team, China or Kinching, Korea. Well, I saw that they tried to you. So for me, thanks for coming. I'm really excited to talk thanks to you. For, thanks, for, thanks for having me over. Thank you. And I can't even wait for my listeners to really get to see, you know, your passion and even get to know just how to even get it done. Because I know even talking to some of my friends who are here, they kind of talk about how they want to help back home, but they don't know how. So we can even highlight some of that. So let's start with, you know, just the basic questions, right? And let's set the principles down. Because I know that a lot of who you are has been shaped by how you grew up and even um, your environment as well. So let's start from that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you, where and how you grew up? Um, so growing up, how do I start? I grew up in a polygamous home. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the best things. It's one of the things I'm very proud of, really. Um, I think it gave me a sense of community. Um, it taught me how to bridge the gap between generations. So I'm number 12 of 14 kids. And so you have our first one who is there, and then I'm closer to the last batch. So pretty much different kind of people uh, frequently dealing with. Now, my dad's spent all his career in public service and one thing my father was very passionate about and he consistently spoke about was the role of private citizens in shaping the community the community so you see my father i remember we're growing up our gates were open for 
kids who had who were like economically disadvantaged to access our home to get water. And yes, much as even when we were teenagers, we didn't think it was very cool because it'd be like, oh, you know, you're middle class family, you want to look all prim and proper, and you know, you don't want other kids to intertwine or interact with you. That wasn't the case for us. Um, my, my dad did all sort of, he would do things like, and it was mostly, but a liberal mostly. So he would also do Christmas carnival where we have neighboring kids come into our home and he do the Santa and he give a gift. And when he's a layer two, he will open the doors. So pretty much I grew up with a father that believed strongly in citizens creating whatever they wanted. So for someone who worked with um, governments up to the level of a director general, he was still always very insistent on, you can't wait for any structured body called governments to come and do anything. Um, you can expect them to. You can know by constitution that they should. However, the fundamentals of creating grassroots change really sits with the people who are there. If I wait for my state government to come or I wait for my local government um, councillor to do anything or chairman, then I'm not really making a difference because he or she is probably dealing with politics every day that is not going to remember all the problems that exist. But if I take the first step and do whatever little project it is, clean the gutters, whatever I choose to do, I trigger the interest in my counselor to feel more accountable to me, to take it up and be responsible in their way. So I'll say most of what I do today um, is because of my upbringing. Um, it's because of my dad. My mom was also a civil servant, so she taught all her life. So I, I think the part of trying to do stuff in education comes from my mom. I saw my mom as a public school teacher spend most of her time coaching the mothers. So I remember a few times after a boys' high school, which was one of the schools my mom um, taught at in Ibadan, and then you go and visit her. I'll say after school, she would just wait behind and she's waiting for the mother of maybe a stubborn child to pick up the child and she would just spend time talking to the mother, not so much the child. You know, she just feels like they flogged the child, they've dealt with the child in school, that's enough. Let me spend some time with the mom. She still does it. My sisters, we all laugh at her that she she gives all nobody asks you for advice nobody asks you for help you jump forward and help you jump forward and you know so um and i you know so pretty much what i do now is my family um my siblings all my siblings have played one role or the other in my life that's a fact um my my dad most especially most especially i, I always say that and my mom at least seeing her work in the public schools um, gave me an understanding of the children's situation there, the quality of education there, and how individuals can actually still make a difference. Yeah. Hmm, wow, that's beautiful. So just want to recap, you talked about the roles of um, private citizens in shaping their community. You talked about seeing your dad in public service and how that even showed you that as individuals, we can make you know impact as well. We don't have to wait for our local government as a way to effect those changes. You also talked about your mom and just the passion she had for education and not just shaping the minds of these you know, young students that she was you know teaching, but also their parents as well. So I definitely can see how those separate entities have really formed who you are. So as a child, what was your dream? Like, what did you want to become um, when you grew up? And has there been like a harmonization of those dreams? <laughs> so as a child, um, I don't know if it was as a child. So say primary school, be, before age 11, uh, you always have dreams of, oh, I'll tr- I would like to be an engineer because my dad was one. Uh, then my mom, 
you know, push for the school of thought of medicine. So then you imagine, okay, maybe I could just go into medicine. Uh, no, I think I didn't have clarity as to what exactly I wanted to do before government class in SS1 in FGDCOU. So the first government class in FGDCOU kind of defined me. That uh-huh. first class where we talked about the office of government. Uh-huh. And the first class, I thought the executive home was cool. But then I don't remember our teacher's name. And I don't remember if he took government. But then as we nope. were, as I understood the role of <laughs> as I understood the role of the legislative arm of government, I just said, you know what, maybe just Senate will just be good. Like that means I control the executive arm and the one that decides what happens. So for a long time, very long time, I really my my plan was, oh, I'll run for a senatorial district in Oyo State. I pretty much was what I thought about. Through university, so I have friends way back that call me senator for me, and yeah, nowadays I have to I catch up with them. Say no, yeah. So now that has changed since I moved into technology. Um, it might be because I then understood better how much we can create impact at scale. Um, it, it probably also comes from the fact that I, I work with an amazing founding team in um, in Giddy Mobile, where. I realized that, see, if you create wealth as an individual in Africa, you can actually institutionalize change. You can you can literally create it because the biggest challenge is poverty. So whoever has the capacity to address it, you might not be able to eradicate it, but reduce the impact, um, reduce the numbers, do something, create wealth for people. Then what I was hoping to do in the Senate I don't need to wait to get to the Senate to actually do that. I can do that now. So lately, I'll say my focus has changed a bit more to say, how can I create better lives now? I don't need to become a senator to do that. Um, If you ask me, I'm not sure if I'm still interested in that. As I've come to also understand this kind of sacrifice that I will have to make to own a public office. Um, And I've also seen some of the things my dad went through. I remember... My dad's latter days in public service was humiliating, you know, to uh-huh. to, to make it. Yeah, so I, I lately, looking at my kids, looking at my husband, who is very private, um, I, I just realized probably won't go down that path. So the path I'm sure of is the fact that I can create change. And so I'm more focused on being a social entrepreneur, um, finding ways to, to pull others up, build people, whatever it is I can do to make somebody else's life better. Just do it. Um, I don't need a political appointment. I no longer think I need a political appointment to create the world I want. So, huh. yes. So I'll say now, my mind is more fixated on social enterprise. Yeah. I chuckled when you said medicine. You medicine. Oh, my goodness. How? Like, how? <laughs> I, think, I think exactly where you're supposed to be. And I haven't remember yeah. you. You were very good at further maths. Because there was that book. Was it Chaos Trout? Whatever that yeah. big further maths book was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, I think I took further maths because of you. Like, it's going to be easy. And I felt that. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back in time. I got like a what? <laughs> <laughs> was it like an F or so? <laughs> in one of my time exams. I quickly dropped to like a hot potato. Because uh, I was like, ah, further maths is not my thing. But, um... I think what I've just drawn from what you said is just wherever we are, we can impact those changes. You know, earlier on, you mentioned being middle class, which I don't think you are, by the way. I think you're one of the 1%, but we'll save that story for another day. Why should the middle class, you know, family care about poverty around them? Because, I mean, as you know, I think sometimes you even help me in 
putting this together. So I'm, I'm just going to ask that question for those that might be in the people. I get so overwhelmed. Like, I just want to do more and more and more. And you'd be like, more, just calm down. Just focus on this one first. Because I feel like there's so much need around me. And it's so overwhelming. Sometimes even that overwhelming feeling even crushes me to a grinder. I don't even want to do anything because it's like, who should, why, where can I start? First, why should we care about um, poverty around us? And for people like me who tends to get overwhelmed easily, because when I go home, it's like going to Nigeria, I get so sad sometimes, you know, when I see just abject poverty around me. And even though it helps me to appreciate what I have, I've, I really want to keep doing more. But why should we keep caring, especially given that sometimes you feel like, you know, how much impact are you making? Are we really making an impact? One is, um, why should we care about poverty? Ah, um, okay. So I'll tell you a story. Or well, not really a story, something I told someone recently. Uh, I met a young girl and I was discussing with her the potential of furthering her education. And she told me, oh my, it's not possible. Like, you know, there's no one to help me. Let me just continue this this work I'm doing. And by the way, the work she's doing pays up below the minimum wage of 30000 or is it now 35? I don't remember clearly now. And I I then I then asked, I told her, I said, see, I'm gonna give you a scenario. Um, you find a way, you push through, you finally get married, um, you have kids, somehow you push through again, you're able to send your child to university, your child starts working, and because your child is gifted, your child gets a good um, a good job. And at the workplace, a child falls in love with this girl. And then the girl is from an elite family. And your child is from really an economically disadvantaged family. And I asked her, I said, the first time your child will visit that girl's parents, what do you think they will say? And she told me, oh, they probably ask, who are your parents? You know, which actually for us Africans is key parents know who, they love, who, your, who your girlfriend's parents are. And I asked the girl, I said, what would they say? What would she say? What would your son tell uh, his girlfriend's mom? And she paused. And I said, that's exactly why you cannot give up. Because you will have struggled through life to get that child through that quality education, whatever you can do. But then at some point, you look at yourself and you say, maybe I should have tried harder. Maybe I should have actually found a way to still go to school. Actually, now, also now that I just feel like for you to say someone is highly educated, it's possible. With the world of digital, a lot of things are possible. So you have opportunities for like Open University in Nigeria, so which then puts you in a place where you can actually access tertiary education while still working on a menial job. So poverty fundamentally has impact on the family systems. Um, if you, you come home frequently, you know that even if you live in Ikoyi, your megad that you pay 75000 to, it probably has 20, 25 dependents in Meduguri that depend on that 75K. And by the way, 75K, Ikoyi megad is a big boy. <laughs> so what happens the day is 20, 25 people are pushed out of their home in Meduguri and somehow it has to bring five or six of them to Lagos. You're going to think it's not a problem for you, but it is. Because all of a sudden, 75,000 made sense when it had family stability and they were all living in Medjugorje. 
but the moment they have to move away from Medugo because of insecurity issues, you know, then they're all in Lagos. It has five people to take care of. Security risk for you. The next thing you're thinking, the Sunfire campaign, this guy is no longer enough. You start asking yourself, is this guy going to wake up one day, carry one machete and jump into my room and ask me to bring out every cash I have? So um, poverty fundamentally threatens the family system. It threatens our community stability. And if you also think of the fact that so much poverty exists in our community here, not solely because it should be that way, but it's because opportunities sit with a small group of people. And I know someone can say to me, oh, for me, that's the same globally. But here, opportunity really sits with a small group of people. Some group of, a small group of people are assured of the future, as in there's guarantee, like no shaking, you'll be fine for the rest of your life. But there's a larger group, over 100 million of our people, about, well, over 90 million of our people now live below $2 a day. And I still bet to disagree because as assuming you're saying less than 1,000 a day, in a, uh, that's, that's almost saying 30,000 a month. No, it's worse. It's really bad. It is bad. So poverty already tilts um, the balance of scale. Two, it threatens the family system. It puts a dent in the structure in a way that we're not mindful of. I can send my child to the best school, then if it thug down the streets, it hurts my child. Just because that thug didn't get the opportunity my child has been given. So you see, the rich will try to protect the kids. We'll build the, we'll build the high walls around us. Then one day, just like a keg of gunpowder, everything goes boom. And that guy is knocking on your gates, pounding it down with a group of ordinary people trying to pull your gate down. So poverty fundamentally threatens the family unit, um, threatens the safety and sanity of our communities. So for me, my belief is as long as I am economically okay, then I should do something. Um, the other thing you talked about being overloaded about the pains and the problems here. So I used to feel like that for a long time. You know, Radiant Future, I pretty much started 2016, 2015, 2016. And that was simply from a class, another another story entirely. Um, and when I started, I was overwhelmed. I was really overwhelmed. I, I literally, most times, I would have tens of women that potentially require help or families. So when I started out, I, I wasn't even very focused on women. I was just really focused on how can we like create business models? How can we do something? How can we drive private investments to low-income families? What can we do? And um, someone just told me once, I said for me, you are playing God. And so the moment the person said, I'm playing God, I literally felt, I started thinking about it. I'm playing God and I realized it's true. I'm trying to fix all the problems. I'm trying to help everybody, um, but I can't. And I do not have the capacity to. Um, but what I can do is maybe I can help three people. Then I can convince three other people who are like me to say, you to look for three, five people to help. You see, then if they tell me they don't have three, five people, I say, I have some people you can help. We have to take them. So one is just take a mindset that it's going to take a, a, a good number of us So. Whenever you see the problem, just remember it's going to take a good number of us. Then you just select the one that's right under your nose that you can do something with. 
and where you need help, you just call. You say, oh, please, I'm having, like you always do, fool me, I'm having trouble, I'm going to help this person, I don't know what to do, what do you think? Yeah, you call. It's part of why I also set up the part of Radiant Features where we do charity administration. It's because I have friends like you who will say, I want to do good. Um, but one, the, the emotional connection to the problem is so great that it's overwhelming. I have friends who come from the from low-income communities and feel like they owe the community. And it's true, we do owe the community, but they do not have the mental capacity. They do not have the emotional stability to deal with it, either because they have other things they're also dealing with in their own life. So they just need someone to kind of like outsource it to. And I like working with those kind of projects because you just point me to the people you're trying to help. And you see, it's easier for me than me looking for it because it's because of what, me also looking for the people. I also get overwhelmed. Like, oh, there's so much pain. But just don't play God. Just calm down. Accept that it's going to take tens, hundreds, thousands of human beings like you to magnify the impact that you're trying to make. Oh, wow. Where do I even start from? That was, you know beautifully summarized for me and yeah you have rescued me in many ways you know especially when I know the person who has the issue and I don't want to get too involved and make it seem like oh I'm trying to help out so for me it's always my front person when I know there's a problem and I know I can meet it but I don't want to be the person I don't want to be the known face right and there's a way she just does it beautifully over and over again and she's someone I deeply trust with money um she's very savvy she'll give it to you straight so thank you for all you do. And I am also very appreciative of how you pointed the fact about not playing God. Uh, and I think at the very core of it, sometimes we do have that tendency, you know, because we're trying to be selfish. I think when we get so uh, emotionally overwhelmed, um, we go into that mood where mm-hmm. it's just like, ah, you know, I got to fix everything. But you don't have to fix everything. Wherever you are, you can start those changes. So thanks for that reminder. Now, how do, how fast do you think Nigerians are responding? Because there was something you said about when you painted that picture of, yeah, you might be rich, you might have all the money in the world. But if you look at Lagos, for example, no matter how you know fancy your house is, you're still going to get on that bad road like everybody. When lake is flooded, doesn't care about your zip code or your, uh, you know, your fence. Everybody's, you know, <laughs> we're all in this shitty water. No point intended together. So maybe... It might even reek of being selfish to try and do good, but the way I see it, the outcome is that good is coming out of it, right? But how how fast do you think yeah. Nigerians are responding to you know the needs of um the people around them through these community development initiatives? Um, okay, so the first group of people I worked with, um, so a group of young men back then, and they spoke with me. They were trying to empower. Um, small businesses in a local government in Enugu. And they asked me, oh, how can they do it? Given the fact that they travel home, come back to Lagos and they get busy. So I remember then we designed something very common actually with the grassroots microfinance banks and even cooperatives. We designed a group lending model that was deployed through the church welfare system. I share that because part of the things that make it hard for people to respond positively to community development initiatives or think of ways to just help the community is really questions around sustainability. How do I give, keep it going? So if you ask someone, oh, just drop 100,000, walk away, um, this is another charity project, they do it and they just tick the box. But it's very hard for them to know how much impact that 100,000 has created. 
So instead, what I tend to do is to say, how can we take the 100,000 and recycle it several times? So that's why, for example, I'll tell you, okay, the 100K, um, let's invest in this woman. Then when she's repaying you, I'm already telling you, you have this other woman. So you're recycling. It's the same you know, pool of funds you're recycling. So what I've seen now is when I talk to people about recycling their fund, basically, let that 100K, let it do multiple good somehow. Do it in such a way that, yeah, a portion of it might not, it doesn't necessarily have to come back to you, but it's not been going in a way that you cannot count or measure how many lives it's impacting. You can then do that. Um, now, response is better, especially for younger people, by the way. Um, younger people in the, in the last few years for me have become very, very responsive. When I first started out, I depended a lot on the older people, but the older people understood charity as it is, which is they drop the money and they walk away. But because a number of young people, yeah, it's just hitting wealth, you know, they're just beginning to make this sense income and they feel again like they should give back, but they want to give back in a way that they don't feel like, well, I'm just giving money out. Like they want to know what's happening. They want to be involved, yeah. Yeah. want to be involved. So what I'm seeing now is people are not just... For example, investing in low-income income women we work with. Have few partners that will come here and say, for me, please, if they are coming to any area close to where I stay, let me know. Oh, this is states I come from. If you guys plan on doing anything in that state, let me know. You see? So people are now saying, I will give my time and I'll give my money. And then I'll give my time on my own terms. But my money can do multiple things for those people. So now the response is better. Um, but... I know it will get greater as more youth earn better income. The more people earn, beats from um, beat Nigerians in diaspora, who by the way are most of the people I work with, um, than those locally. It, it helps. Nigerians in diaspora, they're, they're an interesting breed. Yeah, because most of the guys I work with, yeah, because most of the guys I work with, they, they, their fingers have been burnt. Like, I've had people tell me things like, for me, I give someone 500k. <laughs> I don't know where the business is today. So, you know, and there is always question of, I don't know what's happening. Then also that culturally, um, we're not very accountable. Yeah, there's that thing of Tolani trusts me. The trust Tolani has in me is sufficient. I don't need to, like, there's no need to be saying reporting to her, reporting to her, um, which is also something I try to do differently. I try to, I try to report, like, this is how it's going. Oh, report, and I'll send you one for one. Yes, I can even over-report because I know that the other party needs... Transparency is key to make this work. So everybody has to get transparent about the process. Everybody has to get open. So I involve my partners in lots of ways. Like sometimes we sit down together, look at the company profile and they have to review. Sometimes, like lately now that I have a partnership to do some sort of outreach and training for um, for micro-traders, I have partners that... I'll go admit that. So this is what this company is saying. What do you think? So they've gone beyond just angel investors that help the families and women I work with. They've actually become almost like we're working together. You know, I, I don't want to say they're volunteers because sometimes they're doing more work than volunteers will. Yes. So the response is getting better as long as there's transparency and accountability. It is.
Thank you. That that's really really good. And I should just say that the questions I've been asking so far they might make me look smart. Actually, Fumi came up with them, so thank you for that. <laughs> and spot on on that, spot on on that. Especially how we can get involved and even cited some examples about the different demographics you're working with. And I say this like it was very. I remember when I approached you about wanting something back home. I'm moving to the US. I realized that I couldn't move back to Nigeria like I wanted. I still wanted to maintain some form of um, like just doing some good, you know, now that I'm in a spot where I can do some good, but it was very difficult finding out how to get about doing that because like you said, I've, I've been burned many times, you know, and it's just about when people just think, well, you gave me the money, but why do you even need it back? You know, that kind of thing. But it's not really about that. It's about transparency. It's about being accountable. And I love what you do. I mean, she would send you reports, even over reports. She would give you like all the micro details, what your money is doing. You would get pictures. You would get updates. If you want to even do direct mentorship with the person, she would set it up. And I think that's very, very beautiful and different from, you know, the other, you know, not that I've even ventured with other people, but it's always been one on one, which sometimes, you know, feels for me. But I think your philosophy behind it, like your transparency and, um, even trying to make it more of a cross collaboration i think that's very very beautiful now um we have a question for one of the guests um they would like to know how can we start teaching financial empowerment to the youth from a very young age i didn't learn a lot about money and so let me just say i still don't know a lot about money i just know how to make it and i'm glad i'm surrounded with someone like my husband and you who are very savvy with money because i i mean my philosophy is just to make it and Spending when I can, you know, I don't go overboard, but I, I, there's still so much I don't know about money. But I'm thankful that, you know, I have people who can think about the future and, you know, maybe invest and do all kind of stuff. And I'm actually quite excited about the fact that I'm able to see those, those impacts because you're one of the things you do, which we're going to talk about later on is you tie education to it, which is very, very, um, important to me, you know, as you know, I'm in education and this is why, you know, I really bought into your, your dream and all that. But let's start with, you know, teaching financial empowerment to youth from a young age where should it start from should it be from the parents should it be from school do we need to do a, an overhaul of our curriculum or is it going to be both um okay so that's a good question and um my answer so a bit of background for the person asking so because i've also i've i've managed a large private school before that had kids from ages one plus to 18 19 that's pre-university um, and with that experience, I worked closely with regulators in the education space. Whenever I get to people talking about, oh, let's change our curriculum, I don't jump on that quickly because I understand the bureaucracy that exists in our world. And I also understand how much the commissioners in each state would make attempts to introduce some of these programs. But the moment the commissioner is out of the office and a new one comes in because their political appointment it becomes tricky to sustain them. Um, however, I also remember from maybe primary school, we had few like extracurricular activities or clubs that will indirectly try to teach you some of these things. But again, schools have um, limited time with the children because you have you already have about six to seven hours to deliver on your scheme of work per day then you probably will have just another one hour to do anything extracurricular activity. And in extracurricular activities, you're trying to cover to kids with interest in arts, you're trying to cover interest in science, sports, and all of that. So you see, to to throw in specialized programs like financial literacy becomes a bit tricky. I personally started learning about uh, 
personal finance, I think, in GS1. Um, fortunately, I went to a Catholic school for the first three years. And then they gave us like a book that you had to like keep records of all your expenses. And my mom, when she comes for visiting day, part of the ways I could convince her to say, oh, I'm actually, I actually need more money. And this is why I was, I can bring out that book and say, mom, is here. That last week, it was like, we spent 100 naira. And I could, I could refer to record keeping. So that helped. The next class that helped me. So if you, I'm talking about this so that person asking can also see that somehow there's a bit of financial literacy happening in the educational system already in the curriculum. Then the other class that taught that was economics. You're taught about needs and wants. I think that's chapter one of your economics class based on the Nigerian curriculum I experienced in secondary school. Then in bookkeeping and accounting, I don't remember Frank Frank Wood. There's a book called Frank Wood. But you see, economics, accounting, unfortunately, are not subjects that everybody gets to take. So you cannot wait for the schooling system to do it. The family unit has to do it. And there are simple ways family units can teach their kids financial literacy. You can have your budget. So just the same process we require in the corporate world or in government to create a national budget or to create company budgets is the same principle you apply at home. You have a budget, you break it down. Food, allocation for food is this. Allocation for education is this. Allocation for health is this. And in that process, especially when you're working with kids who can already read and write, who can get involved in your shopping activities, they should be involved in that. I know um, that some bookstores sell, they sell the hard copy, like um, cash flow books. They're just like books I can buy. They're like ledgers that you can buy off the bookshelf, off, um, yeah, off the bookshelf in some stores. So if you walk in and you say, oh, um, I need a book for budgeting or something, an exercise book, by the way, they can give that to you. So in terms of teaching the kids, kids learn by what they see. It's not so much just you telling them. I can sit down with my kids and talk about needs versus wants, but I can better teach it when my son follows me to the supermarket and he's pointing at marshmallow and I'm saying, um, you guys need milk for your cereal this week. Um, the marshmallow, uh, you know, like when Nigerians, marshmallow shake, like what do you want to do with marshmallow? You don't need that, like well, you need the milk. So I then say, remember needs versus wants. Which one is a need? Which one is a want? You see, that's practical. So when it gets to financial literacy, I usually just tell parents, take charge of that. And in financial literacy, you have to teach how to make money. You have to teach how to spend money. You have to teach how to save slash invest money. So it's not about how to spend only. So it's not about, oh, um, needs versus wants. We don't buy that. We don't need it. No. But it's also how do we make money? And it's simple. You can have conversations with your kids. How do we make money? Your child likes to draw. And for most African parents, they say, turn that passion to, um, to, to, to a business venture. Let's it spread is making money. I'll take you serious. You know, it's true. So you can teach kids little things like it's holiday season. And maybe in your neighborhood, um, there are lots of parents that have cars. I know the estates where I lived, um, open estate. So you could see people with cars. There were a group of kids, which ages seven or eight, they went door to door. They did like small flyers and written flyers, and they were asking parents, can we wash your cars? Um, I'm sure their parents felt embarrassed by the idea, 
However, my community encouraged those children and few parents allowed the children to wash their car. And they paid, instead of going outside to wash for a thousand naira, they paid 500 naira. Now, you see, also teaching kids to make money requires a certain level of um, humility on your part as a parent. You realize that your child trying to go into venture is not an insult on your ability to provide for them. It's just you giving them some form of entrepreneurial expression. So we teach it at home. We cannot wait for the school to teach it. And if you if you want the school to teach it, then it means you have to find a way to ensure that your kids attend um, classes where those things are discussed. So in Nigerian curriculum, you see that usually in accounts, um, economics. I think a part of business studies should now cover that. Um, yes. Then I know in some foreign curriculum, there's some part of math that also covers that, but is where we teach on profit. So there's there's some math topic where you talk about um, simple profits and all of that. So they taught us in primary school, but they didn't explain it literally to us within the context of um, creating wealth or making money. So parents need to teach it at home. And we teach by doing, not by telling the kids. It's showing them, involving them in the process. Wow. I hope that helps. Okay, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. And I love what you said about getting comfortable. Because I remember when I was younger, I, I think I was out of high school, just that gap between high school and university. And there was this pay center, um, call center that had an opening by my house. And it was going to pay me, was it one five or 3000 naira per month? It was a lot of money for me then. I remember telling my dad and he just shut it down. <laughs> And the look he gave me, eh? <laughs> it was like, no, you cannot do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that, you know, you say your child trying to go into ventures is not an insult or your capability to provide for them. I think that's something we need to be very um, comfortable with. I think teaching them about money, right? And also, maybe to those that might be here, there's a credit card. No, it was a debit card. It's called Greenlights. And it's supposed to help your kids know how to save money. They have a it provides them with a debit card. There's no annual fees on it. And I think the recommended age is between 9 and 14. They can learn how to save, how to maybe save towards something, but how to, the, the putting the money into it is what you can teach them as parents. You know, how can they put money into it? Not from the, you know, tooth fairy and all that. But I, I think just you balancing both what we can do as parents and what we can also teach our kids. But above all, is showing them, right? We can't just talk the talk and not walk the walk. Mm-hmm. It's showing them, it's modeling what that looks like. But I feel like for parents like me, we need to catch up on that. Like, how do we even learn about financial literacy as well? So that whatever we're teaching our kids, we're coming from a place of knowledge and we're not just doing things that is just, you know, feel good and touch it, touch it in our heads. So thanks for that reminder. Really, really appreciate it. Um, we're going to enter the Q&A session soon, but if you have questions, please put them in the chat. And I want to, I want, I would like to acknowledge everybody on the Zoom chat. Thanks for joining. I can see Ms. Kemi Sariki. Thank you. Um, Dr. Shomoye. Thank you. Because for Labby as well, and everybody, T Dog, H, I don't know who H is, but thanks for joining. Now, let's talk about some good stories, right? Can you share one of the most fulfilling moments you've had so far with the women you serve? I mean, I see pictures, I see the smiles, and I know you're always happy whenever you go see them. And the thing, and one of the things I've seen is that even these women you've helped, you've turned them into catalysts as well. 
you know, their lives are not the same for sure, but you've sparked the fire in them that they can't even look at their community the same way. They go on and become agents of change. So even though you keep talking about the impact you've made on one life, there's no way to even tell the other lives, you know, you've changed by the virtue of that one person that you helped many years ago. But let's talk about one story, maybe one fulfilling moment that really stays with you. And perhaps that's one of the reasons you keep going. Okay. Um, thank you for that. So as you said it, <laughs> I was actually trying to pick one. And I think I'll pick this particular lady. So she's our women's leader in um, Ikorodu in the Ikorodu community, which, by the way, we probably have to split that place because Ikorodu is, is a large... That's where <laughs> I'm from, by the way. Area. You know I'm from Ikorodu, yes. right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I'm a community. Yeah. very large. So she was like the Adamo axis of Ikorodu. And so that's still further out, really. Um, she's been on our program for two, three years now. Um, she was pregnant and I remember while she was pregnant, she reached out to me and told me she's pregnant with a child. The guy she got pregnant for is not willing to take the child. Um, it's caused a lot of family problems. And, you know, and I just spoke with her and I said, we have to find a way. We have to just find a way through this. And literally when I was telling her, I remember I was also pregnant with my twins then. And I looked at myself, I was pregnant with my twins. I was not working. I'm talking to another woman, giving her assurance. And in my head, I'm like, you're giving assurance. How are you going to help her? Like, baby, you go, you need help. So anyways, um, she made it through. She gave birth and she reached out to me. She came. She, she stayed in Illinois in for a while, then came back. to. Unfortunately, when she had the child, I, I don't know what they call it medically, but, you know, the kids that she starts sitting by six, seven months and they're not yet sitting and their head is not still, I, I don't... I'm sure you get you know what that condition is called. I don't remember now. Um, it's not cerebral palsy though. Is yeah. Is it like the a t- muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy? Without saying that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. They also don't walk quickly, so it takes them a longer time to walk. And she visited me 20, 2020, She visited me with a child. And before 2020, we just kept on talking on phone while she was in Quara. And I encouraged her to come back to Lagos um, because the family pressure was too much. Single mother with a special need child, it wasn't easy on her. Plus, her community was far from any primary health center. So she had to travel a long distance, hours on the road to get any care. Then she'd reach out and said, oh, good thing a friend of ours said she could come to, to Lagos, so she moved to Ikorodu. And when she moved to Ikorodu, we had the call again, and I said, oh, she, when she visited me, I said, you have to decide what you want to do. And she said, okay, she'll just start a business. So we said, fine, how much would she need? I think then she needed like 90K to start. Um, our shop rent for a year was 60000 It was quite cheap. And she was just going to buy a few fast-moving consumer goods to get started. So that's like detergents, biscuits, just minor things. But she wanted the store because she felt if she had the store, then she can push herself to expand. And I also thought, yes, get a store. If your KPIs look good and you're doing well with your business, we can find um, angel investors that could help to extend our business activities. Now, she's grown from that stage. Last year, we got her on a POS machine. 
Um, so she started out with a grant of 90,000. In six to nine months, we saw that she was making progress. We didn't require her to refund or anything. Then she asked for low interest loan. We supplied that to her. Then last year, she told us, oh, POS was lacking in our community. Financial reach was very low. It's something she felt she could do. So we had like a mini, um, I call it like a mini informal training with her over the phone. So, okay, these are the things you have to do. So something I always big with all my women is record keeping. I think that's fundamental for them to be able to access finance, either through our partners or if there's no records, it's just literally hard. So most of the conversations we always have is always around record keeping. Then um, some sort of like counseling support because they're listening. Now, I visited her last year, December, and... I saw her son. So while in her shop, I told her, oh, let, let's, I would like to wait for your child to come back from school. And I was still there at three o'clock and the boy was not back. I said, can we go to the school? Like, I want to see him. And so she took me there. And when we got there, I just saw the boy running. This was a child that the last time I saw him, he couldn't even stand. Wow. You could see, you know, when you see, yeah, he couldn't even stand. And she just thought, the boy just saw he's, he's not speaking well, but like the, the sight of that woman just running to meet her child, I, I could just, I just, I just felt honored. That's the word. Like, I literally felt like there's nothing better than this. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, there's literally nothing better than this, that you give a woman hope. And you give a child hope. Because that's it. Most of the women I work with, when you ask them, why do you do what you do? And that's why, by the way, I include the education program. The education program is not just another scholarship scheme I try to push to partners. I say, see, I'm using it to, I'm using your charity scholarship to push them to be productive economically. Because every time I ask them, why are you doing it? The last Matogun women I met with in January, 25 women paid, by the way, they paid for the first time to show for their own training. And I said, I said, okay, Olivia, why are you doing it? Every woman there is doing it because of their child. And for the married ones, they're doing it because of their husband. So fundamentally, women or low-income women seek economic prosperity, not for themselves, but for their families. So it means that if I enable a woman, I'm taking a thug off the streets because what she feels she needs is if she has the capital to support her husband because she's low income because her husband is low income. If she was married or dead or alive, for Christ's sake, <laughs> she would not be low income now. You know, she's doing that. I remember just seeing her run and it just oh, and I carried it. And you know, we went back to the store together and I just asked her, oh, so is this? Oh, like, the boy still kind of, but I could just see, I could see the possibility of growth. I could see the hope that she has, you know, and I could see the confidence she has to take care of that child. The reason why she, she has her issues, by the way, like she has pains, but the fact that she's doing economically well, she's not put under any pressure to involve in any form of social vices that she, that will make her compromise on her personal values. A lot of people look at poor people and think, oh, most of them might be people with, with zero values. no. Sometimes poverty, I tell people like poverty is like darkness. You literally need a great degree of light to clear it out. If you just shine a small touch, yeah, 
you could see a bit of focus, but there's still a lot of dark spots. That's the same thing. So when you see her and you see that she can feed a child, she can feed herself, she can pay her rent, uh, nobody will offer certain things to her and she will just jump on it, except if she's greedy, <laughs> you know, except if she's greedy. So that's also, that's for me, um, in memory, but maybe because it's still fresh, it's just always very encouraging. Like I, I think about it, and maybe because that child is a special needs child, I've never imagined a world where what I was doing would have impact on a special needs child. Never, never, I never, I never thought about it because I didn't see, I didn't see, I didn't really see that happening. I just never thought of it. So yeah. Wow, that also got me, my friends. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, just want to say that. And I really liked what you said about empowering women because I know some might say, why not the men, right? Women were very selfless at the very core of it. And like you said, they want to do it to leave their own, you know, family members, not even themselves, right? So if we're empowering women, we're actually empowering the community. So it's still the same thing, right? We're still lifting people out of poverty. And um, I also liked what you even highlighting that sometimes we don't know the impact that our efforts are put into place, right? We don't know what what the impact is. Just do it. Mm-hmm. You never know the kind of life you're saving. I'm sure that woman will never forget you. She will never, ever forget you. And her life has not been the same. Um, now we're almost rounding off. So if you have questions, put them in the chat. And um, like we said, we're going to be raffling three um, opportunities for you to have a 30-minute free consultation with Fumi on financial planning, on literacy. So if you'd like for your name to be included in that, you can send me, you can put your name in the chat or um, in the comment section or just um, send me a direct DM so that way we can upload you into that. Now, for me, let's talk about Radiant Futures, right? Um, especially the education bit. Yeah. You kind of talked about it, but let's flesh it out a little bit because I think that's one of the unique things about you. And people will ask, okay, so if I give this person my money, how am I guaranteed to get it back? Well, there's a way for me does it and you almost always get your money back. So for me, just maybe talk a little bit about Radiant Futures, um, how it got started. Because I know you're a very busy person. You know, you have your hands in so many pies. Gideon Mobile, um, Legion Hill, um, what's that other one? Is this Strativium, you know? Yeah, and then Radiant Futures. How do you even balance all these things? But let's talk about your business. Actually, the, the, the challenges and the opportunities of starting a business like that in, in Nigeria, we know it's not quite easy, right? And um, what's that competitive edge you have over, about the education piece? Expand on it, because I think it's also an opportunity for you to even maybe see those who might be interested. How do I invest back home and, you know, guarantee that I'm going to get it back or guarantee that my work is actually, my woman is actually doing what it's supposed to do? Okay, so thank you for the question. Um, so there are three pieces to Radiant Future. There's one, capacity development, which is really training. There is two, access to finance. And there's three, incentives. Okay, so the education program we run falls under the incentives. Well, access to finance is the expected outcome from our trainings. The women we work with, they need the financial literacy to be able to put um, their books in order, to be able to design business models that will work for the communities in which they exist in. So I always tell my women, when you're choosing a business, you have to look at one, what's the need 
What's the what's what's your community looking for? And two, what do you have? Once the two crosses, once what you have in terms of skill set or know how, whatever it is, I'm not going to have some education degree here. Whatever your skills is, even your passion, whatever it is, once it matches with existence of a market, then you are creating a business. So, the access to finance piece for us, we work with individuals like yourself, and now because of the work we've done with individuals, we now have. Um, a financial and social inclusion company. So they are a fintech business. They're very focused on giving um, finance to micro entrepreneurs, traders. Now, the partnership with them has opened us up for another level of reach, which is good. Final point, which is what you asked for, the education. The education program is simple for me. It's simply, I have a community. And again, I do group models. So you have the communities. In those communities, you have groups. How do you drive the behavior of utilizing the capital that Ptolemy or my microfinance bank could provide to my women? How do I drive the behavior of utilizing it? I do some sort of incentives. I say, whoever best maximizes the investments they receive, either from our individual partners or from the corporate partners, your children can access this scholarship fund. And in the scholarship fund, um, before now, we financed up to tertiary education. So we do things like you want to do university degree. However, that's become quite expensive lately. And I've been pushing more for vocational training because the women also tell me, I have women who their kids are already learning babbling from age nine. You know, So I started saying, okay, it means our scholarship now needs to provide finance to allow their kids access vocational training. So which means in my Matogu community, my best two women who are effectively utilizing the capital provided to them, either through the private investor or the corporate investor, they will access scholarship, their children. So if any of them picks the phone and speaks to their women leader, and so the mama, which means we have this, I have this child at home is very interested in volcanizer, but I can't take on my business funds. You see, I'm doing well. Once we say you're doing well, we're happy to help. So we take the child. She wants to go to volcanizer. Again, I have, I have grassroots local women leaders. That's something I'm building out. So the woman leader's responsibility is to help me go and meet the volcanizer the child wants to learn and confirm and verify. Then we'll pay them to train the child. So, the message goes round the group to say, ah, Iyalagbaja, that means, okay, the English of Iyalagbaja, the mother of somebody. <laughs> somebody's mom. To that yeah. Somebody's mom has access to that scholarship. So now, ah, this child is now learning this. Um, I also personally have a philosophy that it's easier to create blue-collar jobs for low-income families than it is to create the white-collar jobs. Um, the white collar jobs, like you know, the opportunities rotate with the people who already have the opportunities. It's harder for a child coming from a low income background to break to into break that in. space. Yeah. Unless mm. you're as brilliant as Tolani and your IQ is very high, like my husband's. I knew it's probably going to laugh right now. <laughs> so, otherwise, um, I tend to push for exceptional blue collar job training. So, if there's a a great carpenter in that community that can transfer skills to any of our children under the education program, we make that available. So, and again, 
the the education program is usually financed by um, partners. So I have few partners that are strict charity oriented. They are not very keen about the investing. They they, they all over reporting. They are not very just like for me. Maybe have the scholarship bucket. Just let me just see how many children and you know what the reach is and all of that. So that's how we found that. The other thing is anytime I now talk to uh, microfinance banks. I'm very big on emphasizing to them, if I will do any work with them, they have to plan to set aside a portion of their CSR to support an incentives program that Radiant Futures will design for them. Because for us, even if I'm making capital available to a woman, I should reward her behavior. Research, local research has also shown that women are more credit worthy. However, the main challenges they're having now is the financial literacy. So um, they just don't have enough knowledge. I know women also constantly doubts themselves. So that's why. And we're still not, I won't say we're still unrepresented focused on women, most especially because when we work with some partners, they are looking at an entire sector. They're not fixated, they're not fixated on women, women. So some will just say, oh, we're working entrepreneurs. So they say for me, man or woman um, entrepreneurs, and then you have to do it. But I personally have a thing for the low-income women because I've known and it's natural it happened naturally that was not my goal it just happened naturally that everybody I ever had the opportunity to interact with and to help ended up being women and the more I understood them and their needs the more I just leaned to say okay this group I really do understand this group I can connect with so Hmm. I hope that helps yeah I mean a lot a whole lot So let's recap that. So you, you've you identified so many gaps. And I, I mean, Fumi is super smart, even though she didn't give herself that credit. Or maybe she would, because I know this girl, she's always complimenting herself. In the sense that she, that she identifies the gap, right? And she knows how to meet these women. First, the lack of financial literacy, she would teach them how to balance the checkbook, how to, you know, manage the funds. And then she just that thing about the healthy competition. I mean, if I were to be a low-income woman and you're telling me that, you give me money to start a business. And if I use that money, well, you might sponsor my kid to some form of vocation or education. Ah, you know, just imagine how brilliant that is, right? You're not even just only helping this woman because whatever you're even giving her would help her, you know, her family. But then you're adding another layer of incentive, a bonus education. So this is why I invested for me. This is why I feel like, okay, it's not just the money anymore, right? It's also the opportunities you are providing. And for someone living abroad like me, the the barrier to entry to this kind of investment is almost negligible, you know? I mean, unfortunately, with the Naira and the dollar always playing, you know, yo-yo and all that, it favors me. And I, I hate to put it that way because whenever the dollar goes, you know, higher than the Naira, I know that things are going to get in hard back home all i'm just trying to say is that whatever you send it goes a long way in helping this family and you get those reports you there's a face to it it's not like you know an unknown person you will know the person you're helping if you even want to be in contact with that person i remember that other person we helped and you know she'll send pictures i mean she's still always sending me good i'm like don't worry like she's always always too thankful i'm like don't worry and i think that was why i just don't want to do anything direct anymore because it gets overwhelming but all that to say that I love, I love your initiative. I love how you, you 
you've thought it, you know, all through. And it also shows the kind of heart you have for the community. It's not just putting money away. It's not just throwing money at the problem. You're looking at, okay, how can we help these women so they don't, you know, get stuck in this cycle? You're changing generations. You're changing lives. And I want to thank you for what you do. And thank you for even letting it be a tiny part of that. I mean, it's, it's so mind blowing. Now, um, we have a comment by one of my, um, my, my big mommies. And so, Mrs. Saraki, if you're unable to, if you're able to mute, unmute and, uh, make your comment quickly before we round off. Thank you so much, uh, for this presentation. I is actually hopeful that somebody of a younger generation have this kind of, um, uh, projection and, uh, believe in the society to be able to help, especially women, because we become a society whereby Men are not held accountable for the welfare of their children, as well as the society in general. But I'm so happy that you're doing something positive and continue doing it. Whatever could be of any help, maybe some other project that you're working on, maybe you could share it with, um, uh, with the host. And then we look through there and be able to see, you know, what someone can tap on. One thing that I would really love if you can look into is that how can uh, uh, we, I know culturally, we usually, um, women depend on their children to care for them at old age. But how can the society, you know, you implement in such a way whereby you educate women about putting money aside for themselves because there's no guarantee that your children will take care of you at your old age. I see so many women suffering at the old age whereby they have no source of income, no source of anything that will be able to help them. They depend maybe if they, they put so much effort on their children and when they get older, they will be able to take care of them. So how can you um, uh, come up with a program or a project that will be able to focus on retirement age mostly wow. for this That's woman. the issue of black tax. And I should tell you that um, um, for me, you don't, probably don't know how it, but um, Mrs. Sereke is um, the um, convener of the Panser Panser Forum. She's very Pan-African. She has a heart to just help Australian young. You probably came to, you came to her um, episode. If you remember, she talked about you know bringing the gap between families and children. So Okay, let me just thank you so much for that, Ma. Thank you. And yes, Eshegoni, Ma, thank you so much. Um, you just challenged me, actually. So, and in my head, I'm only thinking of my mom and the several kind of conversations I always have with her. I, I actually humbly accept um, that parents need to be cared for by their kids. I humbly accept that, even though more and more is becoming a difficult thing for most people to commit to. And I've had the privilege to do personal financial sessions for retirees, actually. I, was, I, I did that, I think, last year, December. But we didn't have, I didn't have enough time to engage and really listen. I'm sure if I had the opportunity then, I probably started playing with that in my mind to say, how can we structure some sort of financial literacy program for our older mothers? How can we help them? But the truth from what I saw just from that small experience is sometimes it was already too late what I was sharing with the women because I was talking to grandmothers who were already 60 plus, 70 plus. And as much as they appreciated everything I said around investment, structuring a plan for themselves, 
they thought it was already late. Um, so that's part of why I push strongly for financial literacy now, while some people are still young, young, so they can get that out. But I will still, because you've challenged me, I'll just think of ways. My immediate thoughts, based on the information I have available, for example, is there are things like um, micro health insurance that are available now in Niger in the Nigerian market, where elderly people can actually get access to insurance plans with as low as I think a thousand or a thousand five hundred five hundred naira per month. And they also have the um, national health insurance scheme that covers them. However, few private insurance providers are trying to come up with something cheaper. What I've seen is those kind of plans help them for medical needs, but it doesn't totally solve the um, the financial um, gaps or problems that they might be facing. So I can still reach out beyond the score. Just speak your mind on what you've seen, what you, what you think um, can still be done now. And I can sit and put together a plan for, um, for such women. I will also definitely consult my mom because and just see maybe a few times I've spoken with her about her own personal finances. If there are things she's picked and realized that, oh, for me, you could actually share that with anybody my age because I listened to you, I did it, and it's working. So thank you. I've taken note of that, Ma. So uh, um, Tony will do the introductions, then I'll, I'll do connect that. I'll you. do that. And I think she also, also touched on the black tax issue, which we can definitely explore, which brings me to my very last question. How can people find you? You know, And um, we already had one person show interest in getting that free 30-minute consultation. Again, we're doing, we have two more spots. If you like a 30-minute consultation with Fumi on fin- whatever questions you might have about financial planning or investing, trust me, it's going to be worth your time. Trust me, okay? I don't just throw things out on the on the podcast, you guys know. So if you like that, you can send me a personal message or put it in the chat right now. And for where can people find you? And I know you have even some ventures coming up because we had a chat, you know, a while back. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk about that quickly before we go. Okay, um, so in terms of us catching up, so now in my head, I'm like, okay, how do I post this? I have to Google and check what's the name of the Andrew. So one is I have Radiance Features um, Limited on LinkedIn and Instagram. Those two platforms, because that's where most of our partners are. Um, then personally, I'm still a very, I'm still quite private when it gets to um, social media. I, I filter things a lot. So, but I'm also kind of active on Instagram as um, Fumio Kubanjo. So I can just drop that. I want to drop that in the chat. So that could help. All right. And yeah, even connect, I would just... yeah, and I'll put I'll put all of her stuff. Um she's I don't know even how she does it. She's very private. I'm trying to bring her out. Thanks to Tosi and you know, the people that I've sent to her to make her more more open like this. I'm almost surprised she came on the show. Um final question from one of our listeners is is there a model where they just sew? They don't want to like invest. They just want to sell. Um, they think what you're doing is, um, awesome. And, um, they just want to like a type of initiative where they just have the money. They just leave it and go. They don't want to invest. They just want to sell it to you. Do you have a model like okay. that? Yes, we do. So like I always tell you, tell most of the people who work through us, they, I tell them convert your charity to semi investment in your mind. So it's pretty much what you do. So they just set aside the fund in givings or whatever. But then you subscribe to our um, newsletter database. So you get frequent updates on each. So we have buckets for these various funds that sit with a licensed MFB, microfinance institution. 
so that's where we manage all our investments in the women from um we also usually will send you list of the women we're supporting how things are moving with them but the motive really is put give and let us just recycle your giving yeah like just put the money there let us recycle it so that if it's your $200 your $200 can serve two women and in six months can serve another batch of two women pretty much that's how it's done so yes most people that actually even support us that's what they do they just they just give the fund in they ask us for what we're trying to work towards they look at the buckets they're interested in is it they're interested in giving business grants if they're interested in the scholarship or they're interested in the equity contributions we'll make to the business then they choose and they just put their location there so yes that's um that's that is done to so anyone that's interested i can share some materials with tolani uh or tolani can do the introductions then we can yeah, get them yeah. from there but yes please i try to encourage a lot of women in diaspora even locally back at home we are responders of us who are opportunity and those of us who are blessed economically we are responsible we are custodians of the wealth we have and we need to find a way to give back we need to find a smart way to create the change we want so women enabling women is our thing we have to just do it we, and we yeah. can do it yes i i'm so excited to work with more women on this please reach out to me um i also have my email address i'm just going to drop that i'm going to have yeah. more responsive on email than than that than that well there's a tough question that came from that one about for those that want to invest is there like a percentage um of um annual returns or interest rate blah 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 so there is blah 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 (laughs) yes so again there is um but when you invest in the women it's pretty much we are connecting you as an angel investor to the woman so you invest in her directly um we tell you so usually that will be like equity so you co-own a business for um the minimum is a year and um, the maximum we do right now is two years because sometimes women are very mobile she might be living in mato going today and for one reason or that husband says oh i found a job in ekwe and she's gone so one to two years you can share in our profit but all we do is like we're the bridge that's connecting the low-income woman to another woman that is able to help her so yes we have um we have people who do that Tolani has done that quite a bit too with people so yes yeah i mean the level of investment you want to put in the level of your commitment of your time she'll work with you you know it's not just your money it's also whatever you're able to do and you can tell her what your vision is she's very accommodating so i you know i'm too dog do you want to say anything you're muted yeah, I was going to say, you know, kudos to Fumi for the great work she's doing. Uh, it's really laudable. And um, yeah, I didn't know the extent to which um, uh, you, your, your outreach is um, going and making a difference in women's lives. So well done. Um, yeah, I know Tolani had mentioned something like that in the past, but she didn't go into detail um, about the intricacies. So Thank this was so very much, informative. Thank you. Good job. T-Dog is my husband, for those wondering. Um, thanks, babe. So, oh, this brings... I, I really wish I could keep talking to you, but I know that um, even this little bit we've dropped in into the 
fountain of knowledge we're trying to create on the podcast will go a long way. I'll do the necessary introductions. We have one person say they want to um, meet with you. And I'm also going to introduce you to Miss Seriki as well. And um, for those that are still here, if you still like to be mentored, I'm not mentored, like that 30 minutes free consultation, we still have two spots. So if you like that, please just send me a message. It's it's um, redeemable anytime. There's no... Um, up to that and i want to thank everyone who's tuning today special thanks to um fumi's husband who's on this call as well i don't know if you want to say anything um afalabi i would yield the mic to you if you'd like to say anything and to mrs sariki dr shomaye dr harry olamiju dieko naika of course my sister from kenya and um everyone here thank you thank you for joining us on uh early saturday morning and for me you know we got a lot of work to do and thanks for always bringing the challenge and the support and I thank you so much for coming on the show. And so check her out on Olufumi Okubanjo. That's O-L-U-F-U-N-M-I-O-K-U-B-A-N-J-O at gmail.com. I'm also, I'm also going to tag it on the show notes so that way you see it. I'm also going to pull her Instagram handles as well. Um, all right. Um, well, Falabi, if you don't want, Falabi, do you want to say anything before we go? Or no? All right, there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Hi, thanks for thanks for taking the time out to actually to, to, to talk and to listen. And for me, thank you for taking the time out to actually expand on what you're doing. All I just wanted to say is that what um what she's doing, what she's trying to do is something that just needs everyone in all aspects to contribute. I think the biggest thing here is that, as you said, it's not it's not just about the money. Oftentimes, it's well, the money is important. The money is very important, but it's not just about that. It's about just being able to. Open, to open your mind to the concept that you can do better for everyone. It's not about trying to make hyper millionaires out of everyone. It's about lifting up communities to provide a basic, a much more improved basic standard of living. We can hit that if we can make that actually work. We can raise better families, better people, and give everyone a better life. We start from there and we move on from that. So people, as, I, as, you, as you talk about this, as you look at it, don't look at it in a way that, oh, I don't have a lot of money to give. Or I don't have a lot of time. Every little thing counts and it's not just what you can do it's what you can tell others to do so please everyone i know you've done so much to actually spread the word but please do spread the word share it share the share facebook instagram instagram zoom wherever you have it word of mouth everything matters thanks so much everyone and with that thank you thank you with that we can wrap up the show all right, everyone. I hope you have a lovely weekend and thank you so much. Please keep an eye out on more um, initiatives like this. We plan to just keep bringing stories to um, improve on our communities as well. And perhaps if there are topics you'd like for us to explore on the show, actually this topic on financial literacy came from one of our um, listeners. So thanks to Dr. Joanna Otashi for that recommendation. We would love to hear more from you guys as well. On behalf of everyone on the show, I want to say have a good one. Arifa, you want to say bye-bye to everybody and blow a kiss? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a call soon.